remembered back when I was just a kid, just got my life turned around to the Lord, I heard one of the old evangelists that are long gone now, Dr. R.G. Lee, and uh, he was one of the last of the Philadelphian preachers. And I remember, and I had just gotten right with the Lord, you know, and just was all, you know, sitting there listening and taking it all in. And um, I'd never heard him preach before, and everybody said that he, which he was, was the master of, of preaching and evangelism. He was a great old Southern Baptist back in the old day preacher, just really could preach the Word of God. And the choir, before he came, and I didn't know this, but they sang that song, Throw Out the Lifeline. And he preached a message that night on throwing out the lifeline, which is a salvation message. And I'll never forget, you know, I, I was so glad that night uh, to be able to absorb what he was saying because I knew then at that point in my life that I was saved. And he actually walked down while the choir began to sing and he, like he was throwing out the lifeline to people. And I, that night as I sat there, I thought to myself, I was so glad that in my life that I had grabbed that lifeline and that I knew the Lord Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior. Uh, last week, we looked at Mary as we were coming through John chapter uh, 11 and 12. What an incredible chapter it's been, if you've been following it along. And we looked at an in-depth look at Mary and her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, in particular, defining the concept of worship. Without a doubt, the story of Mary is one place in the Bible that really defines and shows us what John chapter 4, verse 24 is really talking about when it says, we that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Your human spirit and the truth of the word of God. And and how in this story, she's an incredible, incredible picture of that. And, you know, by her taking a very precious ointment, the Bible says, that was very costly, and then anointing his feet. And we talked about the three aspects of really understanding within our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the biblical concept of worship. And I showed you by what she did. The first thing she did is she... She took this very costly ointment and she anointed his feet. And I showed you how that is the part of worship that starts going Godward. She took something that was hers that cost her a lot of money and she simply gave it all to him. And that's the first act of our worship. It has to go Godward. And then what she did is that she took her own hair and she began to wipe his feet with her hair. And that is a beautiful picture of her getting involved now with what she's doing in her worship. And that's where it's a picture of the first one was Godward, the second one is inward. That now she is part of the worship. She's doing with her very life what she has. And we talked about the hair and all that stuff and what it represented. And then the Bible says that the odor of the aroma of the ointment filled the room. And I, and I showed you how that real biblical worship in your life and my life has these three parts to it. When you and I begin to worship God first, Godward, and then we get involved and take it on in, and get part of the process inward, it's only a matter of time before everybody in your life sees it and it goes outward. 
And the Bible says that the aroma filled the house. And you'll also see how that in this story, God will begin to unfold the Bible in so many different ways. And the Bible has so many layers to it that uh, in every story, many times in every verses, there's so many things that you can just peel back and begin to go uh, with a direction of study. And this story will open us for up so many things that will help in time put your Bible together. We talked about briefly, we didn't get into it, but a study of feet in the Bible and how that uh, feet are an incredible study in the Word of God. From the fact that Jesus' feet prepared for the gospel to Ephesians where it says that we should have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I then showed you that there was two places in the Bible where somebody specifically told Moses in the Old Testament in Exodus and then Joshua in Joshua that they're specifically told to take their shoes off their feet. And that's such an important study because what you do when you get those two places, one of them is on Mount Sinai, the other one is in the Mount of Olives there right outside the eastern gate over Jordan. And it marks the beginning and the end of the route of the second coming of Christ. What an incredible. In fact, you can, we've done it a few times. You can actually start there and work through the whole Old Testament and find the, every city and place that he's going to go through. We talked about smells and odors in the Bible and how that uh, it's a sweet savor to God and how that our relationship with him should be like the Garden of Eden and have the beautiful perfume of a relationship. We talked about the table and how that's a picture of our fellowship and talked about the supper where we sit down around the fellowship of the table and then enjoy the feasting on the Word of God. It's amazing how one study like this could open up so many other studies and there's so many other things we could talk about. But that's what the Bible is. The Bible is our unsearchable riches. It just... It's eternal. It never ends. There's always something. You know, if you would read the Bible through a thousand times in your lifetime, and then you read it through a thousand and one, you'd find so many things you missed the first thousand times through. Because God, it's a living book, and it keeps revealing itself. Now today, I want to talk about our third character in this study. If you have been following me along. We know we talked about Martha, and we saw her. We all love Martha. And then we saw last week Mary, and now today I want to look at Lazarus. And Lazarus will be a great study for all of us. And, uh, you know, I, I told you when we looked at it from a doctrinal standpoint that Lazarus is a picture of the nation of Israel, how that uh, he's dead like Israel spiritually. He gets resurrected like Israel does. I gave you all the verses in Romans and the Old Testament. But today we're going to look at it from a practical standpoint. I want you and me to see this, how it impacts us. Because Lazarus is going to be a picture for us of an unsaved man or an unsaved person in general. He's dead much like we were before we got saved. Much like it was before we grabbed that lifeline. We were dead in trespasses of sin. There was no light in our life. There was no fellowship with God in our life. We were dead uh, in the trespasses of sin. And in Christ in our story, 
comes to Lazarus, this dead man, which is a picture of me and is a picture of you, and then gives him life and brings him out of the darkness of death into the glorious light of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, and, and in this story now will be that picture of our salvation, the day we trusted Christ as our own personal Savior. So I want to read for you. We're going to bounce around here a little bit today, but I want to read for you, uh, starting out chapter 11, and let's pick it up in verse 32 through 44. And it says, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And said, Where have ye laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold uh, how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which uh, opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaned uh, in himself, cometh to the grave, and it was a cave, and a, a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Mary, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I know that thou hast heard me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I understand that I have nothing to, to say, nothing to give these folks that is going to be any different in their life because I'm just like them. But Lord, it has to be the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God. And Lord, I ask today that you'd put us all under the blood, that you'd put a cordon of angels around this place today, that nothing would interfere with the clear, plain message that, that I want to give today. Help me to articulate. Help me to understand. Help me to keep myself out of it. Help me. Uh, forgive me. Put me under the blood that I might be able to open up the scriptures for those that are here today and see this great story about a man that was dead and then God brought him back to life. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, <clears throat> There's something I want you to see here for you Bible students, and you'll want to get this in your Bible before we jump into this. Look at verse 35. Jesus wept. Now, that is the shortest verse in the Bible. And if you ever do a Bible drill someplace at camp or whatever, remember Troy used to do that? And somebody say, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? Now you know, Jesus wept. That's not why I'm telling you that. I mean, it is, but it isn't. There's more to it than that. 
This is another key that Lazarus, from a doctrinal sense, is a picture of the nation of Israel. Because there's only two times where Jesus weeps in the New Testament. One of them is here with Lazarus, and the other one is in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, where he's looking over Jerusalem, going through the agony, and he's weeping for them. So that's, you want to get that in your Bible. That's a picture of how that Lazarus is the type of the nation of Israel. Now, as I said, this story today, and we're going to look at it inspirationally, will be a picture of any man getting saved, any woman getting saved. Anybody who's dead in sin and then comes to a new life in Christ Jesus. Now, I want this message to be very clear and plain and easy to understand today. Because most likely, it would be hard today, most likely it would be hard today to get any crowd of people together this size and certainly on the website who are, who are tuning in today, uh, it will be really hard to uh, get everybody who's listening to this that everybody has truly been saved uh, from a Bible standpoint. And so when we talk about salvation, and this is why I want to be very clear with this, this is probably the best salvation message anywhere in the Bible. So I don't want to blow through it. I don't want to focus on everything else uh, and miss the point. I want to come right down to it so we can all understand it. So, but when we talk about salvation, obviously we get into some terminology about salvation. And sometimes it can be confusing. Uh, the day and age that we, uh, we live in, uh, it can be misleading and confusing if it's used wrong. And many times it is. And you'll ask a person, you know, if you're witnessing to somebody or you meet somebody and you talk to them after a while, you will ask the person if they've ever been born again or ever been saved. And you see, that's common Bible terminology that we all use and for the most part understand. And that can and will be uh, an issue if those that you're speaking to don't really understand how it's defined in the Bible because many times, especially today in Christianity, the world defines things in Christianity different than the Bible. And you should know that. So, I never asked that. I learned years ago that, uh, you know, you can ask somebody if they've been saved and they'll, they don't fully understand. That means a different thing to them than it does to me or born again. So I never asked that. I always cut right to the, the issue. And I will always ask them, like I will ask you this morning and if you're listening today. I don't say, have you been saved? Have you been born again? Here's what I ask. If you died right now, if you fell over in that pew, if you died this very instant, do you know for 100% sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Now see, that's it. There's no question about that. It's either yes or no. You can say, well, yeah, I've been saved, and maybe you haven't been saved the way the Bible says, and I've talked to a lot of people that say I'm saved and I'm born again. They still don't know for sure if they die 100% they're going to go to heaven. Hey, I want you to know something. That nails it, you see. It's yes or no. It's the key to it all. People think today that, uh, you know, that baptism saves you. People think today that just living, doing good work saves you. 
People believe today that if you're a good moral person, that will save you. And of course, uh, you know, there's some people blink that if you just join a church and go to church, that that will save you. Some people believe that if you just teach the Ten Commandments, that that is enough to get you to heaven. I've had people say, well, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I never murdered anybody. Or I've never did this, or I've never done that. Guy told me one time, well, I've kept the Ten Commandments the best I could. I always gave him that verse over there that says, if you keep the law at all points and break it on one, you're guilty of it all. In other words, I'm asking you, if any of these things could save you, if getting baptized could save you, if joining a church could save you, let's just use common sense for a minute. If leaving a good moral life could save you, if anything else could save you, why in the world did he have to come down and die on the cross? Why didn't he just say, join this church? It would have been this one. Why didn't he say, get baptized? Why didn't he say, do this, do that? If that, if that would get you there, if that would be enough, if that would pacify God in his wrath for sin, why? I ask you, why? Do you know the agony on the cross that he went through? Do you know how he suffered? How they ripped his back open with a cat of nine tails? How that they kicked him and pulled out his beard. It's all in the Bible. How they carried, he had to carry a 200-pound cross. How that when they, they put the nails in his hands and his feet, they laughed at him, they made fun of him. And they put a spear in his side. If, if just joining the church or getting baptized or doing some good work would cut it with God, why did God put his son through that? You want the answer? The answer is because those things won't save you. In the Bible, there is a clear, simple plan of salvation. That when you really get saved, God's way, born again, when you, when you really, it's the real deal, you now know for sure a hundred percent that if you die at any instant, you know for sure you're going to heaven. My favorite passage in the Bible today is 1 John chapter 5, verses 11, 12, and 13. I think it's the greatest passage in the Word of God that tells you and me that you can know for sure where you're going when you die. And it says this, and this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, the reason why that verse means so much to me is because in my own personal life, I was supposedly saved when I was five years old. Sharon, you'll remember, I remember the day that you went down to get saved. And mom was crying, dad was crying. It seemed like the thing to do, so I cried. And my sister's older than me, so she went down and she trusted Christ as her own personal savior. I went down either that same day or the next week. And I was very young. I was probably five, maybe six years old. 
I remember to this day the lady who opened up her Bible. I remember she had the verses marked in red. I went through the whole nine yards and I, I did what everybody told me to do. We quit going to church sometime after that. And my mom, we lived right across the street from the old Canton Baptist Temple. And uh, my mom and dad quit going to church. And uh, she would dress me up and send me across the street to go to church. That didn't last very long, which is a great principle. You can't send your kid to church. You need to take your kid to church. So anyway, I quit going after a while. And I really got out into the world. I, you know, I was at that age where I got with the wrong crowd and I just, you know, I was just, I didn't care anything about God. And that was true all the way up through my high school years. When I went into the army, it was true. And when I got out of the army, God put some circumstances in my life. My father went home to be with the Lord. He was a saved man, as my mom was. And, uh, you know, it really rocked my world. God used that. And so I told you before how that I, I got right with the Lord and, and, you know, and I started, you know, going to church and doing all those things. But you know what? The devil just kicked me six ways from Sunday. I'd struggle with things like we all do. And I, I, I would, and the devil would say, see, you're not saved. And I'd say, I'd try to argue with it. Hey, let me tell you something else. The last thing you want to do is try to argue with the devil. I'd say, yes, I am. And he says, where were you saved? And I said, back. And he said, you, don't, you didn't know what you were doing back then. And, I, and I, it bothered me because I don't think I did. So here I am going through this great struggle. Am I or am I not? I never told anybody. I was embarrassed. I, I didn't, it was stupid, but I just did it. And then one night... I was living by myself. Mom got remarried and moved out, and I was living in the house by myself there. And it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was reading my Bible, and I was having some tough times with, with the devil just kicking me around that I really wasn't saved. And so I was reading through 1 John chapter 5, and I hit this passage. And it says, this is the record. God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And then it hit me. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. When I saw that, it's just like God turned the lights on. I kicked the dog off the bed. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't believe it. I found that I could know, and I didn't know. You know what I did? <laughs> it was so simple. I just crawled out of bed, got on my knees by the end of that bed, and I said, Lord, I don't know what I was doing when I was five. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. I don't know, but I'm struggling with this. But I'm asking you right now, Lord, if I am not saved, if I didn't do it right, if I didn't know what I'm doing, I believe you died. For I went through the whole thing, and I said, right now, I asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart and save me. Now, I've been asked many, many times over the years if I really thought I was saved back then or I got saved that night. And to this day, I can only tell you this. I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I got it now. I never doubted it past that night. And the next time that old devil came to me and said, you're not really saved, and he will. This time, I had a record. And the Bible says, this is the record. You know, you can't do anything in life without a record. 
especially your birth certificate. You could go to college someplace or join this or join that, and they want to see your birth certificate. The fact that you're standing there is not proof enough that you have been born. They want to see that piece of paper that validates that you have been born. My dog's got dog license. I have a record in Jackson County in Raytown, the, the, the millennium place of Missouri, where they might have a record of their, their, their whatever. My vet has the record of their shots. You can't, you buy a car, you get a receipt, you got a record, you got a title. You can't go to Quick Trip and get a cup of coffee or one of your latte lamelados and ask them that they don't say, would you like a receipt? You know, you can't really do anything in life without the record of your birth certificate. And you can't do anything in life spiritually without the record of your spiritual birth certificate. God gives us a record. The record's the Word of God. And the Bible says, God, the record is, God hath given to us eternal life. God has made salvation available. And then it says, and this life is in your baptism. This life is in your church membership. This life is in your good work. No, this life is in his son. And then the clearest verse in the Bible, that either you have him today or you don't. He that hath the son hath life. He that hath not the son of God hath not life. These things he has written unto me, that I may know, that you may know, that we have eternal life. And I'm telling you, you can know 100%. So I don't ask a person, have you been saved or born again? Everybody's been saved or born again in their own mind. I want to know this. Right now, this very second, if you slipped out into eternity, do you know for sure you'd go to be with him? God's plan for the salvation of man. Now let me show you something here. First of all, God wants you and me to be saved. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, he says, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. God wants us to be saved. We talk about the concept of hell and a man dying and going to hell and a person, you know, spending eternity in hell. And yet, when you study your Bible, you'll find out that the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, that hell was never created for you and for me. It was created for the devil and his angels. God never intended for you or me to ever go to that place. Now, a lot of, God's, a lot of people will go to that place, but it's not because God wants you to go there. God did everything in his power to get you not to go there. He came down and died on the cross. He paid whatever price. He put this incredible plan of God's love and salvation together for you. Forget me. Forget the person sitting next to you. For you. Personally. Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all, all should come to repentance. Now, let me tell you a story here, if I may. And I want to make this very clear. Uh, you may go to hell and you may die and split hell wide open. I pray you don't, but I'm going to tell you this. If you do, it won't because I didn't tell you the truth. 
It was because you rejected the truth. So let me tell you a story here about the plan of an eternal God who wants to create man and women to have a relationship and fellowship with him. The story we all know starts back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Who doesn't know that story? You may not know all the details of it, but it's like Noah's Ark. You know there was a big boat and a bunch of animals got on it and there was a flood. Everybody knows the story of Adam and Eve. You may not understand the particulars of it, but that story starts in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And God made Adam, created Adam, out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then Adam, 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 he created Eve. And he put him down in a garden. That garden is called the Garden of Eden. And what you got back there is God made a perfect world. It had perfect weather. It had perfect animals. We show up from church here today, and right across the street here, there's a... Uh, uh, a, um, not a lab, a uh, golden retriever. Her name is Linda. She stands out there waiting for people to come to church. She runs over here this morning with her tail wagging and just happy to see me and bouncing all over the place. I tried to get my bag out. I thought she was going to get in the car. And then I opened up the church door and she almost came into that. And she just, well, you pet her, she just, she's the sweetest dog in the world. And I always think to myself, you know what? Back in the garden, Lions did that. Bears did that. You know, you know how people get killed in zoos and get maimed? They get in the wrong dispensation. <laughs> they go to the zoo and they think that big old... I mean, what lion laying there doesn't seem like he would love you to hug him? <laughs> what, what bear isn't the cutest thing you ever saw in your life. And so these idiots will climb over the fence, reach through there, or get in with them and become dinner. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, there was a time when you could do that. I've always thought about Daniel when they threw him in the lion's den. Those lions were down there to rip everybody apart, and they had. And this is another great story. They throw Daniel down in the lion's den, and he probably had the best night's sleep he ever had. The king didn't have a very good night because he knew he did wrong. But could you imagine a body heat of 112 degrees for an animal like that? Eight or nine of them all snuggled around, purring and snuggling while you're sleeping there. And somebody said, you know what? The lion's den was a terrible place. I won't tell you something. Being thrown into the lion's den is never an issue when the lion or the king of the tribe of Judah is with you. And the Lord's standing in the corner and he says, Now, boys, I know we're in the wrong dispensation. You're like eating these things. In fact, you know, one of the Roman guys went in the other day and says, I don't know what we're going to do about all these lions. They're eating up the prophets. <laughs> and he says, But I'm telling you, my man Daniel's going to come down to shoot here in a moment. And everybody is going to really go back to the garden mindset. And old Daniel come in and them lions just all curled up there and got the best night's sleep he ever got. That's the way it was in the garden. By the way, that's going to the way it's going to be in the millennium. But that's the way it was in the garden. And God made everything perfect. He made the animals perfect. He made the weather perfect. 
Who wants to really look excited about getting up at 5 o'clock to go to work in the morning? In the garden, you didn't have to. He didn't work. He walked around. He didn't have to labor for his food. It was on the ground. It was right there. I mean, uh, if, if he wanted some apples high up, he just told the giraffe to move his head up there and knock some down, and he got everything he wanted. It was a beautiful place. The Bible says that Adam and Eve fellowship with God. He wanted that fellowship with his creation. But I need to tell you something else. God will not force you to love him. That's an uncharacteristic concept of a holy God. God wants us to choose to love him. This is called free will in the Bible. So he put two trees down in that garden and he told Adam, don't do this one. And if you don't do this one, you can have this one. And this is the one I want you to get. But don't do this one. You know what Adam and Eve did? Same thing you and I would have done. Took the wrong tree. You know why we got the problems we got in life? And we all have some problems. If you're saved here, your problems have now the ability to be fixed. But if you're not saved, you know why you got the wrong, the problems you got? You got the wrong tree. You just took the wrong stuff. And when they did that, it destroyed God's world. That perfect environment. Everything was now a mess. Now the animals are going to eat you. The earth has a curse on it. And that sin that came in because they chose by a free will. Because God won't force you to love him. He wants you to choose to love him. Now, most of you are married or not of you are married. Some of you younger guys are going to get married. Some of you are, your wives are older than you. (laughs) But would you really want to have a wife or a husband who you had to give some kind of drink to every day that they would keep loving you? And the moment you didn't give them love potion number nine, you know, then they didn't love you anymore? No. We all want people to choose to love us. We want them to look at us, see us, and say, I don't know, but I'm going to love them anyhow. We want people to choose. God wants you to choose. He's not going to come down and make a robot out of you. There's no fellowship with robots. God wants a free moral agent, a human being, who has a desire to be with God, who has a love and a passion for God, who wants to spend an eternity with God because they understand how God is good for them and what he's done for them. And the Bible says that sin, that Adam and Eve, it separated them from God. Now the Bible tells us, whereby as one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And now we're alienated from God. We can't have fellowship with God. We're separated from him. Never to be part of anything he's doing because we are now, Romans chapter 5, verse 10, because of that decision that we've all made to be distanced from God. And now there's nothing we can do. This is where the mindset, well, if I go to church or I do something or I do this or I do that, I'm going to tell you something. There ain't nothing you and I can do. He has to do it for us. Somebody says, God is love. Yeah, he is love, but I don't under- think you probably understand. So they say, well, God is love. You know, he loves everybody. Well, I understand for God so loved the world, but let me give you a God definition of God's love. God's love 
is the fact that he came down and died on the cross for you and for me. That's God's love. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. And all of our righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6 says, is as filthy rags in the sight of God. And that there is none that's righteous. No, not one. And this will be the spiritual condition of every one of us before we truly found salvation, headed for the destined for the lake of fire. And let me be clear here. I, I want to separate myself. Boy, this modern-day Christianity stuff, you know, there is, a, uh, there is a, maybe you've seen it, there's an ad on television that they're trying to win people to Christ, and it says, heaven or not. You ever see that one? Heaven or not, and then you call this number. And I looked at that when I first saw it, and I thought to myself, what in the, that, that is it right there. You know why they say heaven or not? Because they just can't use the word hell. It ain't heaven or not, it's heaven or hell. But they can't say that word. It's un, not popular today. I mean, hey, here, common sense, the unsaved world uses it a million times a day. But God's people can't. It shows you the mess we're in. I want to tell you something. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And when a man used to preach, old Bob Jones Sr., he'd preach on hell. He'd preach, and those guys would preach hell so hot you could feel the heat. And somebody said one time, well, I don't think you ought to preach. You're trying to scare people. He said, I'd rather have people hell scared than hell scorched. A lot of truth to that. Hell is real. It's where men and women stay in their sins because they have rejected Christ. And I don't have time to get into the reasoning behind that, an eternal fire with an eternal soul and an eternal sin. But then Romans chapter 6. Oh, what a great verse. My pivotal verse when I deal with somebody. For the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God going to hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God made a way. We didn't deserve it. Nothing we could do to get it. God made a way. Now listen to me. He loved his creation so much, you and me, that when Adam and Eve did what they did and threw the world into the mess that it's in today and alienated all of us from God and our fellowship with him, God then said, I love my creation so much, here's what I'm going to do. I couldn't trust Adam and Eve to do it. Every man in the Bible that was a great man, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, you name them, every one of them failed and fell into sin. You know what God said? If I'm going to fix this thing, I'm going to have to do it myself. And the Bible says that God took on a body of a man. God manifested in the flesh. He came down to this earth. He lived for 33 years, and then he went to that cross, and he paid the price. The Bible says where one man brought sin into the world, the first Adam, the second Adam paid the price and took it out. And then he made a way for all of us. You on the YouTube, listen to me. He made a way for you. You sitting here today, if you don't know for sure 100%, if you die, you go to heaven, he made a way for you. He made a way for me. He made a way for everybody in this room today. 
And yes, sin came into the world by one man, but by God sending himself down to take on the body of man. The Bible says, Romans 5, 8, but God commended his love toward us. In that, that love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He looked down through eternity. He saw every one of us, every one of you. He saw me struggling in this world, headed for the lake of fire. And he loved you and loved me so much that in that love, God commended his love toward us. He died for us. He paid the price. Where Romans 5.10 says, I was the enemy of God. Now I have the ability to be reconciled. How? By the death of his son. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that peace is? That peace is knowing don't know where you go in this life or what happens in this life. That when you die, you're going to heaven to be with him. It's just that simple. Peace with God. I can't stand up here and tell you what the future holds. I know not. But I can tell you and introduce you to the one who holds the future. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your record. That's what he has for you. He wants you to know. He loves you so much. The death of Christ on the cross in our place, my place, forget me, your place. And nothing else will give you that peace with God. And for us, there is no other way. I can have my sins forgiven and know 100% that I'm going to heaven when I die. Forget about being saved. Forget about the terminology. Ask yourself the question. If you would die right now, this very second, where would you spend eternity? If you don't know for sure, it comes down to nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling And on that cross, he took my place. He took your place. He paid whatever price you and I pay. Don't you know that on the cross, when he's hanging there, he says, I thirst. That's a picture of you and me in the lake of fire, like Luke chapter 16, where the rich man just wanted Lazarus to touch his finger to the water to his tongue because he thirsted. We'd have screamed our lungs out, I thirst. He screened them out for me. And then when the sixth and the ninth hour, when darkness on the face of the earth and the moon, the sun wouldn't shine and the clouds rolled in and the earth quaked, he looked at his father who loved him. He looked at his father who loved him and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You want to know the answer to that question? You. Me. Everybody in this room. God could have come down and taken him off the... Hey, back in the Old Testament, one night, one angel come down, one angel, and killed 186,000 men. 
I, I have a theory, and it's my own personal one. If you don't like it, I don't care. It means something to me. I know how much God loved his son. And I know when he's on that cross and God's looking down and he's going through the agony and they beat him and they whipped him and they put the nails in his hands and his feet. He asked for water and said, I thirst. They gave him vinegar. And I bet you, I bet you, God is just about ready. And when that Roman soldier walks up, I mean, they're casting dice for his robe. When that Roman soldier sitting over there watching this thing got a hot date tonight in Bethlehem. He says, watch this, boys. Watch this. He picks up that big old spear and he looks up there. And boy, he throws that spear and it goes up into his side. I bet you at that moment of time, God had had enough. I bet you at that time, God raised his hand to send down 10,000 angels to take his son off that cross and wipe out the world. But at that moment, his son said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And God's hand was stayed. And God knew that if he did, Bob Alexander could never go to heaven. He knew if he took him down that cross that you could never get to heaven. He knew if he copped that thing in process as angry as he was, as he watched his beloved son, whom he was well pleased, be brutalized, agonized, and just treated, I mean, with um, uh, unbelievably... But he stopped for you and for me. Now salvation, if you're ever going to get it, if you're ever going to accept it, have you noticed I haven't even gotten to the text yet? This is an incredible introduction. Our salvation has to be about our personal sin debt. Too many people get saved for the wrong reasons. They don't get saved to fix this or fix that. We get saved, and you need to understand that we get saved because you and I have a personal sin debt to God that must be paid. And the only way you can pay it is to allow him to pay it for you. You can't pay it yourself. So when you get saved, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, your sin needs to become exceedingly sinful. You need to see it as a personal accountability to Almighty God. And then when you get saved, you need to understand the word repentance The word repentance is a very confusing word today. People always think it means you repent, that's getting saved. That's not exactly correct. Repentance and salvation go together. But salvation is one thing, repentance is another. And when you understand repentance, you realize that repentance in the Bible means you turn to a different life. You don't go down the same old road again. Too many of God's people get saved today and their life doesn't change from the world. They still care about the things of the world. They still smell like the world. They drink like the world. They do everything the world does. There's really no difference in their life. Repentance is a change of direction that you're going to now, because you are saved, go in a different direction of life to be his disciple. Now, in our church here, we have a discipleship program. 
a number of lessons that will bring you through and show you once you get saved how to set that course for a new direction in life. And the Bible says very clearly, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You show me somebody who doesn't, still holds on to the old things? Four days in the Bible you want to remember. The first one's the day of the Lord. That's God's day. The second one is the day of Christ or Jesus Christ. That's the rapture. That's Christ's day. The third one is the day of wrath. That's Israel's day. And the fourth one is the day of your salvation. That's my day. Your spiritual record. Then you grab the lifeline. 1 John 5, 11, 12, and 13. You know, on Sunday morning, we do birthdays. We have a lot of fun. We're just a big family here. And we, uh, go, we go through birthdays, but we also go through spiritual birthdays. That's the day you got saved. That's the day God will change everything about you. And if it hasn't changed, there's something wrong. Your thinking in life is now changed. Your direction in life is now changed. Your affections in life are now different. And your eternal destiny now is different. Through salvation and then repentance. Turning to another direction in your life. Now, salvation is not complicated. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus... And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and the mouth confession is made unto salvation. There's simply two aspects to a man or a woman getting saved. One is a head knowledge, and the other one is a heart knowledge. You believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and paid your price, and you, he died in your place like we've been talking about. And then based on that, through the head knowledge, you confess and ask him to come into your heart and save you. Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Now, the next question is, the obvious question, when should I get saved? Now, as soon as you hear the gospel message. You see, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Proverbs 27, 1 says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised this afternoon. You're promised right now. Now with all that I said, finally. Let's look at Lazarus in John chapter 11. And I want to show you an amazing thing. Why if you're listening to me here this morning, you're sitting here this morning, you need to be saved biblically. Now, I want to show you an amazing thing about the story in the Bible dealing with dead people. Dead people who picture us in dead trespasses of sin who then get life from the Lord Jesus. It's a picture of us. And for you today, hopefully, it'll be your day of salvation. Now, in the New Testament... You will have three people who represent unsaved people who get saved. 
Three dead people. And the amazing thing about it is when you look at these, it brings an incredible study that you need to see today. And in their story, you will see the absolute importance of trusting Christ as your personal Savior as soon as you hear the gospel. Gospel is the good news that Jesus came, died, and was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. His death on the cross to pay for my sin, your sin, our personal sin debt. And you'll see in these three examples, the longer you wait to be saved, the harder it will be to get saved. And there may come a time in your life when it's impossible for you now to be saved. Not because God won't save you, as you'll see here in a moment, but because we have put so many things in our life for so long. Allow me to show you. Now, the first person I want to look at here will be in Mark chapter 5, verse 40. So let's turn over there. We're going to pick it up in verse 22. And it says in Mark 5, 22, And behold, there cometh one one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Now, between verse 24 and 45, another little story comes in here. It's the woman with the issue of blood. We don't need to worry about that, but pick it back up in 35 now. Back to our story about this girl. And while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John. Now that is a great study in itself of the inner three, but we don't have time to get into that today. And come into the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult, that's confusion, uh, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was coming to say it unto them, why, why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Now that is one of the greatest single keys anywhere in the Bible that begins to open up a study of what happens when you die. Don't have time to get into that one this morning. <clears throat> but when you teach it today, verse 40 is what God's people do, what they did back then, because they missed it too. And they laughed him to scorn. They couldn't get what he was talking about. Most of God's people can't today either. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by hand and said unto her, Talai thy come I, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and compound and commanded that something should be given her to eat. 
Now, our first example here, and I want you to note a few things, is a young girl that's 12 years old. Now, I want to say this to you before I make my point here. The best time for you to get saved is around that time. This is close to the age of accountability, over a little bit maybe for most people, but very young in her life. And as soon as you know the truth, you need to get saved. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, except you come to me as a little child, you have no part with me. He's always focused on little children. Did you ever see that? Now, I didn't get right with God till I was 20 years old. And let me tell you, those first 21 years did me no favors. And I'm telling them, the longer you wait, the more baggage you accumulate. And that is the key word in our study right now, the word baggage. The longer you wait, the more baggage you're going to fill up. And you open up them bags. Uh, you know, when we do discipleship here, that's what a lot of it has to do with. We bring somebody in that just got saved, and we open up them bags. Some of the stuff you can keep, some of it's got to go. Now, this little gal here, it's always been interesting to me. The Bible says, and this is what I want you to focus on, the moment he said, arise, straight away, she arose and she walked. She's got no baggage. She's 12 years old. She hasn't set the patterns of deception in her life yet that we have. She hasn't set the pattern of doing what we want to do. She's still tender. And I am telling you, the greatest time in your life to get saved is when you're still tender and the world hasn't tainted you. Because the longer you wait, the more baggage you accumulate, the harder it is. This girl here, she straight away gets up and she walks. And then he says, feed her, feed her, feed her. Now, I've said it many, many times. We have a host of you young men and our ladies in our church that are in your late teens, 20s, 30s, most of you, teens, late teens, you know, high school kids, and I tell you all the time, this is the greatest time in your life to get your head screwed on straight to serve God. Most of you haven't learned yet how to be deceptive. You haven't learned how to lie to God. You're still tender. And, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. I, I drive by John Knox Village every day, and, and uh, you know, we went down to retirement homes, you know, for a while there, and I guess we're going to get to start that back up now that the covert has gone away, but do you ever notice how the devil never attacks old people? I mean, if you walk down John Knox Village, I don't think there's ever been a drug bust at John Knox Village. Uh, you may walk down the halls about 11 o'clock at night. But you better do it a little earlier than that. You might hear a little Willie Nelson coming under the door. Do you ever notice the devil doesn't go after those people? Because he's already got them. You know who the devil goes after? You kids. You young people. You know why? He knows something you better figure out. You're at the best part of your life right now. You're, uh, you're the strongest. You're the smartest. You haven't got into the world too deeply yet. 
They're still, and you're like that girl. You can get saved, you can stand up, arise, and you can walk, and we can feed you. And off you go. Off you go. The longer you wait, I watch from the, or everything we do, from the Bible explorers up through the Timothy, to Zach and Jenny in the high school, we try to take you kids and get you indoctrinated into everything that you need to know to keep you. Because we all know that the devil wants to sift you. He wants to take you and destroy you. He wants to take that innocence from you. He wants to take those years from you. He wants to open up your duffel bag and put as much garbage in it as he can that by the time you're 50, 60 years old, you need to have a tractor trailer to haul it around. Now is the time. And this first little girl, 12 years old, Arise! Notice I didn't say her name again. I ain't trying to pronounce that twice. Arise! She's up and goes. And then he says, feed her. Now, here's our second example. This will be in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 15. And now here he says, And it came to pass the day after they went into a city called uh, Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. And when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the buyer, that's a coffin, and they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. Watch it very carefully. And he delivered him to his mother. Now the Bible says in verse, four, uh, verse 11 here that this was, a, uh, verse 14, this was a young man. Now in the Bible chronology, that would put him a young man as somebody that's actually in their 30s or 40s. The Bible looks at it differently than we do today. And I want you to note that he's in a casket. A casket is a box with a lid on it that traps you inside where there's no light. He's not like the 12-year-old girl. Uh, this guy needs help when he comes back to life. And, and what a time that must have been. There's, I can just see this funeral procession coming down the road. All the weepers and mourners and Jesus has compassion on them. It's like I gave you last week. See, his, 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 he learned to survive, then he thrived, and then he got passion, and now he's got compassion. We've seen it twice already. And he's watching this little funeral procession. The guys are carrying a casket, and he sees the mother, knows that she's all by herself, her husband's dead, and she stops it, comes over there, and he says, don't, and he puts his, oh, what, well, how, what a great thing to be there, and see him put his hand in that casket and said, young man, rise! That casket flew open. That young man sat up. But he had to be delivered. Somebody had to help him get to his mother. You see, he'd had 30, 40 years of baggage. He had 30, 40 years of bad influences, bad thoughts, bad actions. 
that would fill a few suitcases. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 12 that a threefold cord is not easily broken. You know, you can take a little piece of thread, just like some of you ladies do when you sew something, and you can wrap your both ends around and just snap that thing. Just a little piece of thread. Look at that one piece of thread as one sin, one bad choice, one this, one that. You take that same spool of thread that you could so easily break just one strand, and you wrap it around your two fingers 50, 60, 70, 80 times. You will die before you break it. You take the cords of this old world. You don't get saved when you're young and you're still tender and you wait for a while. And you keep filling up those things. By the time you're 30 and 40, boy, you've got some things wrapped around your fingers that you just can't get rid of. He sets up and he begins to speak, but he has to be delivered. The little girl didn't need any deliverance. She just got up and walked. Now he's in a casket, a box with a lid, something that he's enclosed in, that somebody had to come and open that casket before he could get out. And after 30, 40 years of a life in this world, there will be some things that will lock you up and keep the light of God from coming into you. You see, the one little girl, 12 years old, she's up and on her way. This guy is 30 or 40 years old or somewhere in there. He has to be delivered. Then our last guy, our third example. Now we'll come to John uh, John chapter 11 with old Lazarus here. Jesus said, you know the story, we read up there, they're up to the tomb now, and Jesus said in verse 39, take ye away the stone, Martha, good old Martha. And she says, uh, don't, don't open that stone. Now, he smells bad, he's been dead for four days. You know, yeah, you know, you know, let the stink of the dead keep the miracle from God from happening. Jesus says unto her, shut up, Martha. <laughs> Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee, if thou would have would have believed thou shouldest see the glory of God. She wants to keep the glory of God from coming through because this guy may smell after being dead for four days. And I'm sure he did. And they took away the stone from the place where the stone where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, thank thee that thou hast heard me. I know that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Now do you see in our progression here the issue with putting off salvation? It's one word. It's baggage. The longer you wait, the more unrighteousness you put in your life, and it wraps you in filthy rags of unrighteousness. Lazarus here is probably 70, 80, maybe older than that. Our first gal was 12. The second guy was maybe in his 30s. This guy is probably 70, 80, maybe older than that. And he's been wrapped up in 80 years of the grave clothes 
all the things of unrighteousness that he's wrapped himself in, which is represented by the grave clothes that they wrapped him in in that cave. Note in his life his filthy rags now cover him. Verse 44 says, and boy, this is a great example. The longer you wait, the harder it is because when he's 80, 70 years old, it's covering his face. He can't see the things of God anymore like he could when he was 12. He's been blinded by some things. He's now spent 60, 70 years alibying and getting out of the conviction that God has put him under, and he's blinded to it. So his righteousness and his filthy rags cover his face. 50, 60, 70 years of having your eyes exposed to the wrong things. And when you get to that point, it's hard to see God doing anything because you can't see what he's did because he hasn't done anything for you. Then look at verse 44. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. I heard a preacher one time said God was so powerful and Jesus was so powerful that he would, when he went into that tomb where obviously it was a graveyard with other dead people, he says, Lazarus, come forth. If he would have just said come forth, everybody in the grave part would have come up. <laughs> I kind of like that myself. But. <laughs> He's bound not only his face, but his hands and his feet with grave clothes. Now you just can't up and go and serve God like the little 12-year-old. Now you can't even be delivered. Now you've got to be unwrapped. Now at this age, you have to undo a lot of things you didn't have to undo when you were younger. These in the Bible are called strongholds. Now strongholds have taken over completely what you do with your hands, where you go with your feet, and what you see and say with your face. This is not a criticism at all because it doesn't matter to me. I've seen guys that were saved, women who were saved for 10, 15 years and couldn't give up smoking cigarettes. It's not a criticism. I've told the people with the, uh, with the, uh, working with the Sunshine Ministry, I know most of those ladies smoke and sometimes they don't want to come for a long time because they've got to have a cigarette. I get that. I told Charles and them just, hey, if they have to go out, go out and have a cigarette. Just don't smoke in here. I don't care. I'm not going to let you not get the gospel because of something that you've addicted yourself to. I mean, it's a thing where, but that's what happens, isn't it? One little thing like that can control your life. I've seen it with drugs. You've all seen it with drugs. You all know people in your world that are addicted to drugs. I've seen it with alcohol. I've seen it with gambling. I've seen it with pornography. It doesn't matter. You wrap yourself in those things for those many years, and it takes over your face, your eyes, your mouth. It takes over your hands, and it takes over your feet. And you're trapped. And when you get saved, if you do get saved, <laughs> you need unwrapped. And the men have to unwind all those things in his life. I don't know how many times I've spent with people who are older, 50, 60, 70 years old, who do get saved, but boy, they struggle. There's things they try to undo and they can't. They just fight it all the time. I understand it, and I'm sure God understands it. And it's not a criticism. But my point is this. You need to get saved as quickly as you can. The younger you are, the more tender you are, the less baggage you have, the better off you're going to be. It's just that simple. 
Did you ever notice this? When Jesus was born in Matthew chapter 2, ever notice that they, the Bible says they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger? Do you know what swaddling clothes are? They're grave clothes. They're the same cloth that they wrapped Lazarus in. You know what that tells me? That tells me from the very moment he was born, he was destined, wrapped in my unrighteousness, that I wouldn't have to be. Folks, it doesn't get any better than that. It just doesn't get any better than that. And I'm telling you, the longer you wait, the less chance you're going to have. It, it would be one thing if it was just you. But you got an opposing opponent that wants you in the lake of fire that will make sure the longer you wait, the harder it is. And that will be the devil. He will work overtime to get you. See, Christ already did the work on the cross. You need to let that work come into your life. To know for sure, a hundred percent, if you died right this moment, you'd go to heaven to be with him. You know, in the Bible, there's two examples of men who put it off. In the book of Exodus, you have Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8, verse 10. And he was faced with the power of God like probably no man ever was faced with it. He saw it all. He under things he could not explain. All because God wanted him to let God's people go out of Egypt. And that's a picture of a man's salvation, of, of accepting what God wants to do. You know what Pharaoh said? He says the same thing I've heard a thousand unsaved men and women say in my 50-some years in the ministry when I confront them with what I'm talking to you about. You know what they say? Tomorrow. Pharaoh said, I'll let them go tomorrow. You talk to somebody about their salvation and going and trusting Christ and getting to heaven and knowing for sure, tomorrow. You know what happened to Pharaoh? Tomorrow never came. He died. And you know what will happen in most cases? Tomorrow will never come. Then the other one goes over there in the book of Acts, chapter 26, verse 28. And this is Paul when he's up against King Agrippa. And boy, Paul, it's a great study. He is laying it out to him like nobody ever got it. And he is, now get it. Paul is in prison, he's in chains, standing before King Agrippa, and when you read the story, it's hard to determine who's captive here, because old Paul's putting it to him. You know what King Agrippa says? Same thing that so many people have said. Old Paul laid out the salvation that God was doing and the plan that God was doing, and King Agrippa was looking at this thing, sweating bullets, just under conviction, and at the end of that thing, he says, almost... Almost you persuadeth me to be a Christian. And he died and went to hell. I've laid this story out to you as simple and clearly as I could today. The Gospel of John, we saw when we started in John chapter 20, verse 31, was a book that God wrote for man to find God's salvation. Now with all that I've said... I ask you one final time, do you know 100% for sure if you would die right this second that you are 100% sure you'd go to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question. 
That's the question of your eternal destiny, and that is the most important question you're ever going to face. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, I waited to do this message.